Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. On the phone today, we have IRS Special Agent Brian Watson. He's going to tell us what's going on with some recent scams. Brian? Good morning, Cherry. Yeah, I have some good news I wanted to share with the public. We had a couple sentencings this week in federal district court in Tucson for individuals who are involved in a lottery fraud scheme. Um, the first individual, his name's Omar Stevenson. He was born in Jamaica, living in Georgia, sentenced to 57 months in prison. He was part of a scheme where Jamaican-based scammers were calling elderly victims in the U.S., claiming they'd won a lottery. And then, of course, there's the catch. To receive their winnings, the victims were told they must first pay money for all the taxes and the fees. So his scheme, they lost for the victims in his scheme $900,000. Wow. Um, and this was a, you know, a, a perfect example of law enforcement working together. You had FBI, IRS, Postal Inspection Service, and Homeland Security Investigations. And then there was a, a, a similar scheme, a, a woman named Chanel Bailey, uh, sentenced to 24 months. Once again, a Jamaican-born individual, she was living in Utah, and she was doing something very similar, calling people up and part of the scheme. And also on this case, we wanted to tip our hat to uh, Pima County Sheriff's Office and the Federal Trade Commission helping out on that scheme. So the, the key message to let everyone know out there is, don't fall for a scam like this. And then keep an eye on that, your family and friends and neighbors who, you know, it's when Could you hear vulnerable. you've won. Yeah, when you hear you've won $5 million, your mind just doesn't think right. And you do things <laughs> that aren't spent smart. It. <laughs> you, you know, and all, yeah, all of us, you know, everyone could be a victim. I mean, everyone has a price. Um, that, and everyone could be defrauded. So really look out for anybody. And, and here's the key, Sherry. The lead lists that these people are calling, the names that they're calling, they are calling the 80-plus sector of our society. They are really trying to get people who are most vulnerable, who are most likely to have Alzheimer's or dementia or just diminished mental capacity, unfortunately. Where do they get so, these lists? Uh, well, it's technology. I mean, lead lists are available everywhere. I mean, companies sell it, and they're very valuable. And and these individuals can sit at home on a cell phone, and a lot of these calls are emanating out of Jamaica. Wow! And they call people up and tell them they've won all this money, and then you're you're right. You start spending that money before you have it, and then when they just ask for a small percentage to pay those fees you figure, well, that's worth it. I can do that. And then it's it's just all gone. I mean, to the wow. tune of, in this one case, $900,000. So Insane. some good news. But um, unfortunately, these these people are like whack-a-mole. You know, you, you, you stop one and other ones will pop in their place. So we really have to Stay educate vigilant. our family and friends. Stay vigilant and really, you know, have that talk with mom and dad or grandma and grandpa and make sure they know not to f fall for this scheme. It's not a complicated scheme. It's just a phone call and some possibly some emails. Uh -huh. So please, please let everyone know that we are successfully getting some of these people, but we need to really dry up the pool of potential victims. Okay, if somebody does get a call, how do they report it? The Well, there's, you can call your local police department. You can go to... FBI's IC3, which is their Internet Complaint Center, even though it's you know even though it might be a phone call, 
um, you can do that. Um, you can call um, just, uh, man, where else? Um, Federal Trade Commission. You the, can the call. F- yeah, the FBI uh, website is, is pretty thorough for reporting stuff like this. They, they ask you all the questions. I've gotten calls from what appears to be Wells Fargo, and they're, they're trying to fix my car or, you know, some other local company, and they're trying to... Um, you know, sell me a, a stay at some hotel or whatever. Does the IRS have a reporting? We don't. We don't. Um, it's the logistics on it are a little crazy. FBI is much more situated to, to do that. They have a, a much better system set up. I mean, the thing is just the biggest way to avoid this is is just screen your phone calls. Yeah. And if someone is asking for money, don't be afraid to hang up. We're too nice sometimes. You yes. know, you know, and, you're when I do well closing and- <laughs> packages for loans, there's there's a paper in there that'll say, you know, do you want to opt in where we can share your information? And I always tell people, don't do that. Opt it's, out. It's just it's not necessary. I get no. so many sales calls on a daily basis. Um, you know, don't be afraid just to screen and hang up and say no, thank you. And uh, same thing with emails. Just delete emails from People from the prince companies that you don't know yeah <laughs> from the prince yes okay <laughs> i'm glad you called in and told us that i'm glad you're working hard and and keeping us safe and till next time you yeah, and, sure. you and mark need to, yeah you and mark need to come back on here and talk to people all right well have a great show this morning you too take care bye okay in the studio we have Customs and Border Protection Director of Field Operations, Guadalupe Ramirez. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Sherry. Thank you so much for inviting me back to your show. Oh, we've got so much to talk about. We haven't talked since before the pandemic. Exactly. So how has the pandemic affected your job? Uh, it, it affected it tremendously. I mean, if, if you look at the uh, travel restrictions that were put in place um, right after the pandemic started, uh, that, that had a huge impact on the travelers coming in through our ports of entry, which in turn had a big impact on our local economy. Right. So what they did was they basically said it had to be essential travel. And essential travel is basically travel for the purpose of, uh, you know, medical appointments, uh, education, or uh, cross-border trade. Other than that, if you're a legal permanent resident or a U.S. citizen, you can travel for any purpose. Uh, that's considered essential if you're a U.S. citizen. We're not going to stop a U.S. citizen from returning home or a legal permanent resident. But it did cut our traffic by close to 40%. So anybody who had a visitor's visa who could come and shop and vacation in Arizona uh, could no longer cross, uh, again, unless it was essential travel. And so um, a lot of our communities, especially where, where our ports of entry are, uh, places like San Luis, Arizona, Nogales, Arizona, Douglas, Arizona, their their economy, their well, their budget for their city is based on uh, sales tax that they collect. About 70% of their budget is based on sales tax. So when all of a sudden these shoppers are not coming across, that's a huge, huge hit to them. Uh, similarly here in Tucson, uh, a lot of these shoppers would come all the way to Tucson, all the way to Phoenix and Scottsdale, to, to the malls and to the shopping centers. Um, and we're hearing from our stakeholders that it was a hard hit for them. Yeah, I can imagine because back and forth, people go over the border to, you know, have lunch, buy bakery goods, and go to the dentist. I know several people who go to the dentist down there. Nothing was happening. 
It just stopped. Exactly. Exactly. That's crazy. Did you take an extra day off because there was nothing to do? I wish we could, but uh, <laughs> no, you know, the, the drug smugglers don't take a day off, so uh, we can't take a day off either. So how did this affect them? How, how are they, I know they like to be creative about what they do. How did this affect them? What are you finding? They changed their strategy. You know, before, you know, when you have a lot of cars in line, they play the numbers game. They want to blend in, and uh, that's a great opportunity for them just to send uh, cars loaded, and, and they still do. But with the reduction in traffic, uh, and the fact that they couldn't recruit um, Mexican nationals uh, to, to come across, uh, you saw a shift to recruiting American citizens and legal permanent residents, and you also saw a big shift from vehicle compartments to body carriers and internal carriers. So smaller quantities of narcotics either uh, strapped to someone uh, underneath their clothing or an internal carrier coming through pedestrian or coming in a vehicle which is a, is a challenge. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a, a smaller quantity, harder to detect. What kind of state of mind do you have to be in to be an internal carrier? I mean, I mean is this a job that pays well? Is that why they do it? Well, you know, it's, it's easy money. Well, I hate to say easy money. I mean, but, but uh, uh, you're right. I mean, to, the, the mindset that you have to be in to, to uh, um, be recruited to go That's in. That's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous because the narcotics that, that you're carrying internally, if, if, if the package that they're in bust, uh, you could die. You're screwed. Uh, right, because fentanyl, I mean, these, these, these tablets that are being produced in Mexico, I mean, it's not like they have a lot of quality control. You know, some, some tablets may have very little of the, of the narcotics in it, the, the opioid. Some may have more than enough to kill you. And so you can imagine if, if a package busts and you have, um, you know, literally hundreds of pills inside you, uh, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. It's, uh, it's something we take very serious, you know, so uh, when we apprehend somebody, uh, a lot of times we wind up taking them to, uh, uh, medical, you know, to a medical facility just to make sure that they're okay. So if, how do you find out if they have pills inside them? You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's all the officers. It's that, it's that officer intuition that they, that they develop, that gut feeling. So, you know, when they're sitting there, uh, again, our agency is very different. We're not like your typical law enforcement agency that responds to a crime. Okay, before we answer that question, explain to people what your job is because, like you said earlier, people get you confused with Border Patrol and you're not. Right. We're under the same umbrella. We're under the same uh, large agency, which is Customs and Border Protection. But Border Patrol is responsible for the areas between our ports of entry. So along the border, anybody who comes in illegally, that's Border Patrol's primary mission. At the ports of entry, we conduct all the customs processes and admissibility process, which means that we're processing travelers. We're processing people that, that uh, uh, show up with documents and are coming in to legally enter the country and vacation and shop and conduct business in the great state of Arizona. And we're also the trade agency. So... Uh, we, we process legitimate trade, uh, so all the products that are coming to enter the commerce of the United States. And, and for, for Arizona alone, that's $17 billion worth of products that are coming in, that are, that are entering the commerce of the U.S., that are going throughout the United States to be sold. Um, we have uh, our, our top commodities coming in through Arizona are auto and auto parts, uh, medical equipment, machinery wow. um, by value. Um, and then by volume, it's produce. So over a hundred, well over a hundred different um, fruits and vegetables that come in through our ports of entry that go throughout the United States. These are fruits and vegetables that are grown primarily in Sinaloa and Sonora. 
and uh, and come in through the port. So we are a revenue collecting agency. So when you look kind at kind of like the IRS. Yeah, so nation, nationwide <laughs> nationwide as an agency, we process well over 2.7 trillion dollars in trade and we, and we collected well over 80 billion dollars in in duties and taxes. Here in Arizona, like I said, that's, you know, uh, 17 billion dollars in in trade um, and about um, 49 million in duties and taxes that we collected. So that's huge. We are the trade police. You know these these trade agreements. Uh, we have to make sure that people are are uh, importing according to the rules. That they're not trying to uh, uh, transship through Mexico, make fraudulent claims, uh, bring in products that use child uh, labor or forced labor, bring in products that uh, are coming in to be dumped into our economy. So, uh, dumping means that a company that's uh, subsidized by their government will intentionally sell a product in the U.S. for less than it costs for them to, to make it with the intentions of, <coughs> of hurting the U.S. industry that makes that product. So if they can put you out of business, then they can charge whatever they want for their product. So it's, it's, uh, it's, we, we have, we're responsible for many very complex uh, processes and procedures. How do you tell, how do your people tell if something is a fraudulent product? Well, we have, uh, we have commodity specialists Right. We work with the, the manufacturers, with, with the, uh, the owners of the trademark or the copyright uh, so that, for, for instance, if, if someone's bringing in, uh, anything can be copied. So let's say uh, Levi's jeans. Right? Levi has a, a copyright on the type of fabric that they use, the type of dye that they use, the quality control. And, but somebody will, will fraudulently make their patch and put it on a pair of jeans. If we have a question, we have import specialists that can take a look at that. We have laboratories that can test the fabric and tell you where the cotton was grown. Uh, I mean, so we... Really? We, uh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. We're a very unique agency. Wow. And how much training does that... I mean, is this continuous? Absolutely, absolutely. And so we have, we have import specialists or commodity specialists for pretty much every industry. Wow. Right here in Tucson or Arizona? All over, all, all over. over. Yeah. So in Arizona, we have we have import specialists that focus primarily on the commodities that come in through Arizona, but uh, we have import specialists throughout the United States. So if something comes in that maybe we don't get a lot of here, we have a question, we can always send it to another field office, and they'll analyze it. Right. We have laboratories. Uh, we actually have a laboratory in Nogales that's primarily there for narcotics testing, but we have a large laboratory in Texas, and we have another large laboratory in. Uh, California and in other states as well, but those are the closest to us where we can send commodities. And it, it's not just uh, fabric; it can be almost anything. Okay, you you just said that in Nogales you have um, drug testing. Yes, we have we have a satellite office for for our laboratory and science services. Uh, we have a couple of chemists, and they have all the high tech equipment. So when we make a narcotic seizure at the port of Nogales and at some of our other ports as well. Um, we have the test kits that most law enforcement agencies have to test it. Uh, but some of these narcotics, you know, when you have, uh, like fentanyl, that's it's a very small percentage of the actual opioid in there, uh, the test kits sometimes struggle with testing it. So we actually have a laboratory. We just take it to the, to the chemist, and they, uh, they test it for us, and they can tell us exactly what it is and the breakdown of it, what percentage of it is opioid, what percentage of it is filler. It's amazing to, to watch them work with that equipment. Wow. I didn't know that. That's cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. Everybody. So when you have these cars coming through and and they've got little pockets of drugs somewhere in the car and you tear the car apart, do you take those drugs that are obviously illegal and send it to this lab you're talking about? We yeah. In, in Nogales, we literally just walk it over to the lab and uh, and have it tested. So tested. What other kind of drugs do they bring in that's illegal? Well, we have uh, heroin, cocaine, um, methamphetamine, and fentanyl. And then, of course, you know, we, we get very little marijuana these days. Uh, the majority of what we're seeing are, are, are uh, methamphetamines and fentanyl. Something that's really going to kill you. Absolutely. So I heard that the cartel in Mexico are, are pretty ruthless with each other and protecting their territories. Do you think the Mexican government's ever, I mean, this is a horrible question to ask you, is ever going to take their country back? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I, I know it's a, it's a challenge, um, but uh, I certainly hope so. I think, you know, it, the, the, the Mexican people deserve that and, and it make things a lot easier for uh, Americans as well because we like to go and, and visit just like they want to come visit our country. We want to go visit their country and, and, and uh, uh, shop and vacation there as well. And when you do that, you want to feel safe, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I, I certainly hope they do. That's not going to be an easy thing to do. Tell me about, you know, I know last time you were here, we were talking about um, minors without parents and how children are being used over and over again to bring people in. Tell me what's going on with that situation. Well, there's been a, uh, <coughs> there's, there's been a lot of change in that as well, you know, because before... You had um, you had people coming across uh, knowing that at that time that if they were part of a family, they had a better chance of, of uh, staying in the country uh, and going through the asylum process. Uh, so yeah, they were they were kind of renting kids. You know, they have you know, people show up with children, say they were their children, and then months later, those same kids would come across through some other port with another group. Uh, that has kind of slowed down quite a bit. Now you do see. Um, you still see families coming across, and not all of them are, you know, the parents of the children, but there'll be an aunt or an uncle or, or a grandparent. And, um, and now you're also seeing a lot of children showing up by themselves. Their parents may already be in the United States, and, and they're trying to be reunited with their family, and they're showing up at, the, at our ports of entry. Um, right now, the majority are actually showing up between the ports of entry. Uh, large quantities, but we still get quite a few at our ports of entry, and, and when, they, when they come across... Uh, we have to process them. And so that's what we do. We process the, the children, and then we contact uh, ICRO, uh, which is uh, the enforcement and removal part of, uh, of uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And, uh, and they work with Health and Human Services and the Office of Refugee uh, Relocation, and they try and find either where to keep them uh, as they go through the process or working with a non-government organization to try and, and uh, reunite them with their family. And you said that sometimes the parents won't come pick the children up. No, they, they, the, the parents are, you know, it, sometimes the children will show, will show up and they'll have a phone number to contact their parents. And so we reach out to the parents to let them know that the children are safe, that they're in our custody and they're being processed. And we'll ask them to, to come for their children. Um, many times the children themselves will be talking to their parents, asking them to come pick them up. Uh, the parents are concerned that if they show up, that we're going to process them and possibly deport them. So, you know, our officers are there when a child hears from their own parents that they're not going to come pick them up. 
Uh, it's it's heartbreaking, and you know that that's another point that that I'd like to make is that a lot of times you hear in the media that you know I don't know they make us out to be bad uh, guys, bad guys, and yeah. uh, you know, but we're all you know just because we wear a gun and a badge uh, doesn't mean that we don't have a heart, and most of our officers are also parents. Uh, we're compassionate, and and you know, and we do everything we can to to take care of these kids. And our office do a, a fantastic job at that. Uh, but it is, it's heartbreaking when you have a child crying because their parent told them they're not going to come and pick them up. And how did they get to the border? The parent doesn't want to pick them up. Who put them over? Who put them at the border? Like a relative, or did they just? You know, a five-year-old on their own. I'm going to walk to the border. How no, does that happen? It's a fan. It's it's either a relative of some kind, or sometimes they'll pay a smuggler to to bring them all the way up to the border. Like the ones that were dropped over the wall. The ones that were dropped over the wall. Yeah. Just amazing. Mm-hmm. Just amazing. So if they pay a smuggler to take the child over the border, they're assuming that they're going to be connected with their parent or a family member, grandparent, aunt, uncle, somebody. But then. They have the phone number and they call and they say, I'm not going to come get you. Right. So what they're hoping is that, you know, once a child is processed and we turn them over to ERO and, and they work with, uh, with a, a non-government organization, an NGO, to, to contact them, that they'll use that same phone number, contact them and set up to where the NGO can then pay for the transportation for the child once they've been processed and, and admitted um, and, and send the child to their family. That's remarkable. And how do they send them? Don't they have to be chaperoned? Do they go by bus, train? Bus, plane. Um, yeah, you'll see them. Sometimes they escort them through the airports and the, and uh, and get them on the plane. And don't they have to be chaperoned? Not always. It depends on the age of the child. Because remember, uh, a child is anyone 17 years or, or younger. So sometimes they're old enough to travel um, by themselves. Wow. Wow. I can't imagine what they're escaping from, you know, either Mexico or Nicaragua or any of these other countries that would prompt them to have a child by themselves go through this this journey. Yeah, it's, I think it's a combination. I, I, I know that uh, many of these countries have been impacted by um, hurricanes. Uh, there's also violence. There's also, uh, there's just so many things that, that uh I guess will push a parent to to decide that it's safer to send their kid through a journey of of that distance and, and, you know, and try and get them into the U.S. Wow. Does Canada have this problem? Not like we do. No, they have people that that sometimes uh, will show up mainly uh, air passengers that will come in from other countries and then claim asylum in in Canada. Um, and, and sometimes they're going to Canada and then trying to come into the U.S. or vice versa. They'll come into the U.S. and then go into Canada and ask for asylum there. But their, uh, their asylum claims are not nearly as high as ours. Is there a crisis at the border? And all the news say, oh, we've got a crisis. Is there a crisis? Well, that's a, that's a tough question for me. Okay. <laughs> but I will tell you that, that, you know, for us in our agency, um, you know, we, we're apolitical. You know, we, we, we do what our commander-in-chief asks us to do, whoever that is and, and whatever that direction is. And, and our job is to try and find that balance between, and, you know, being a narcotics interdicting agency, being a uh, travel and trade facilitating agency and, and a revenue collecting agency, and at the same time, you know, process these family units and these children. So it's, 
it's not one process that we're responsible for. And our, you know, our biggest challenge is in reassigning or you know our our resources so that we maintain that so as we're as we're addressing this challenge over here this this you know influx of of family units or or children that we don't hinder the facilitation of trade and travel excuse me which has a direct impact on the economy so one of the big differences if people are going through the border you know thinking that your border patrol your uniforms are navy blue absolutely so your customs. Yes, ma'am. And if you wear a green uniform, you're Border Patrol. That's right. So it's like the military. They have all these different branches. They all wear different outfits. I guess they're called uniforms. Sorry. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Customs and Border Protection Director of Field Operations, Guadalupe Ramirez. And thank you again for being here bright and early this morning. My pleasure. Tell me what got you involved with law enforcement. How long have you been doing this and and what inspires you? Yeah, I've been doing this for over 35 years. And um, I grew up in a small town uh, about 90 miles east of El Paso, Texas. And uh, there was a Border Patrol station in that town. And so um, growing up, uh, that's what I aspired to be. And so... In uh, 1985, I actually joined the U.S. Border Patrol, and I was stationed in Eagle Pass, Texas. And I did that for a few years, and then I saw the light, and I came over to the blue side. (laughs) Um, uh, I just, you know, I I had opportunities to work at the ports of entry and work with the customs guys. And um, and so I I jumped over to the customs side, and I went to El Paso, Texas. And uh, my first day on the job, I ran into... uh, beautiful young lady that I uh, eventually married. I convinced her that I was a, I was a steal. Let me tell you, I was a great deal. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I went to customs in, in uh, it was 87 that I went to customs. And uh, I, I did several years there in, in El Paso, Texas at the ports of entries. Um, then I had the opportunity to go to the customs academy. Uh, my first two years there, I was a, a physical techniques instructor. Where's the ca- academy? The academy is in, Glen- is in uh, Brunswick, Georgia. Okay. And so I was there uh, five years total, two years as a physical techniques instructor and three years as an academic instructor. Um, and then around um, 95, we had a reorganization in the agency and we created the Office of Strategic Trade, which has since changed, but uh, they opened up these uh, centers called Strategic Trade Centers. And I went to Dallas, Texas as an international trade specialist. And I did three years there. Then I had the opportunity to go to Trinidad and Tobago as an advisor to their country, working with their custom service. How was that? That was uh, amazing. Uh, Trinidad is a, a beautiful country with beautiful people. Uh, we enjoyed our time there and uh, uh, had a lot of fun and, and did some really good changes there, working with them at their seaport, uh, streamlining their processes, um, and creating a canine enforcement team, creating a narcotics, a, a marine interdiction unit. Uh, and then from there, I went to uh, the port of Santa Teresa, New Mexico. I was there as the port director. And I was there, um, I got there maybe a month before the tragedies of uh, 9-11. Wow. And I was there three years and then went to Venezuela and did similar to what we did in Trinidad uh, in, in Venezuela. That was a little tougher because of the Chavez government. I was going to say that's not an easy place to be. But it was at that time it was still a beautiful place to be. You know, it was it was uh, now it's you know what you see going on in Venezuela is is just a tragedy. But it's Venezuela also you know beautiful country, 
uh, great people, really enjoyed our time there. Um, but with the Chavez government, that project was cut short, came back, and I went to Laredo, Texas, uh, which is our biggest inland port on the southwest border, and I was the assistant port director there for uh, passenger processing. And in 2009, I finally got to Arizona. Uh, so we, I was assigned as the port director at the Port of Nogales, which is our biggest port here in Arizona. And I was port director there for seven years before coming to the regional office here in Tucson as assistant director. And then at the end of 2018, I was promoted to uh, director, the director position. So, you know, it, it in this agency, again, very unique agency, um, we have so many opportunities you know at our ports of entry we also have pre-clearance locations where we we have officers living and working in in a different country and they process uh air passengers at an airport so that they go through the customs process the u.s customs process before they board the plane so when they land in the u.s um they don't have to go through customs and what that does is that it helps us you know in in these large airports where we have a lot of traffic yeah. a lot of congestion like your jfk your um O'Hare. miami exactly o'hare so if we can clear passengers you know before they arrive then that reduces the congestion so we have pre-clearance locations we have five throughout canada we have aruba we have bahamas we have ireland uh, and we're constantly working with countries to open up additional preclearance locations. So our officers will start on the border with us, and then they'll get an opportunity and go and live somewhere like that and work like that. Um, we also, like I said, you know, within within our agency as a revenue collecting agency and, and trade enforcement agency, we have uh, entry specialists. Uh, entry for us is the documents needed to bring uh, a commodity into the into the commerce of the U.S. and and collecting the duties and taxes is the responsibility of the entry section, and then we have import specialists as we talked about earlier. Uh, we have uh, the fines, penalties, and forfeiture section, which have, we have paralegals, um, and we have our mission support staff. So a lot of opportunities within this one law enforcement agency. Okay, if somebody's paying uh, paying you to enter these taxes. How do they do it? With credit card? With check? How do they do it? Uh, no, it's, uh, you know, you, I guess we still could collect a check, even though uh, less people are getting away from that. A lot of it is, is electronic transfers and okay. uh, and cards. So it's it's changed a lot over the years. Uh, we went from, from issuing uh, handwritten receipts. Everything now is electronic because if you're going to import something coming in through the border, you have to submit all that information electronically to us two days before the shipment arrives, unless it's... it's they should do that with these kids. <laughs> they should. And we're actually working right now with with uh, some of the NGOs here locally. Um, our agency has developed uh, uh, basically a phone app that can be used by the NGOs in Mexico to start providing us some of this information for people coming our way so that Ahead we can... Yeah, so we can expedite this. And, and we work with the State Department similarly when we have some of the workers, you know, that, that are coming across... Uh, we kind of do the same thing, so kind of jumping on that or following up on that, we're using that same type of of, uh, of app. As we have a lot of day workers, are they day workers that come in and work and then go back home to Mexico? You know, we have we have both. In in a port like San Luis, we do have a lot of day workers because the fields are right there in between San Luis and Yuma. So, you know, it's it, San Luis is a very unique port in that most of our ports on the midnight shift traffic slows down. 
in San Luis, those workers start coming across starting at about three o'clock in the morning. Oh, wow. So we'll literally process 3,000 workers between three and five in the morning in San Luis. Oh, my God. So that port, the every shift is, is staffed with the same amount of people that you would staff on your day shift and your swing shift because there's just so much traffic. At places like Nogales, we get a lot of the H1, H2 visas, which are the, the workers that are coming across that are going to be going maybe a little further into the interior of the United States. And so that's a visa that allows them to come in and, and work. Uh, so they've been petitioned by probably some uh, farm uh, somewhere in, in the interior of the U.S. or maybe up north, and they come in to go work there. So we'll process them. They get their visa at the State Department. They come across to the port for the final processing and permit. How long is a visa good for? It depends. Uh, a lot of it will be good for a season. Uh, most of the time it's it's just for the duration of the time that, that uh, they were petitioned for by the uh, the business. And the business has to sponsor people? Absolutely. They, they have to request. And so what they do is they try and hire Americans first. If they can't, then they'll uh, go through the program with the State Department to try and get workers. It's probably not your wheelhouse, but do they pay the people the same if they, like American wages, minimum wage, do they pay these people the same minimum wage? I, I think, you know, I think by law they're required to, and but I'm not sure if it's, if it's the same minimum wage. It may be kind of like... Um, uh, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not quite sure yeah, what the pay rate is, but... but it just uh, made me think about it. It's like, okay, do they pay taxes on that, Social Security, all the stuff that comes out of your wages? is It's different if they're not living here, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah. We need to find out. We do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next visit. Just, just curious. So if I want to work for you, what is the hiring process? You get onto usajobs.gov, which is a website that, where we post our vacancy announcements. And uh, you look for uh, the announcement that you'd be interested in, whether it's an, an officer or an agriculture specialist or any of the other positions that we have. And you apply through that website, which connects you to the CBP uh, human resource website. And so you submit your, your, your resume. In some cases, like for the officer position, They'll sign you up for a written test that you have to take, and then you'll have to come back for a medical exam, a physical test, and a polygraph. When you pass all that, then you'll get the offer for a um, hire, and you'll have to go to the uh, academy. So we still have our academy in Brunswick, Georgia, and you'll have to successfully pass that. And once you pass that, you come back to your port of entry, and we put you through what we call post-academy training. Before. How long does that take? Too long from my book. It's, uh, <laughs> it'll it'll take you. Uh, I think right now the post academy training is probably at about sixteen weeks, and the academy is probably at about four months, five months. Oh wow! Yeah, that's a lot of training. It but is. Look at what you do. Exactly. That's amazing. So if somebody do they have to have a college degree to work for you? No, at this point they don't have to. It helps for their qualification depending on what the degree is on, but uh, at, at this time uh, it's based on experience or education or a combination thereof. So if somebody has a degree in agriculture, because U of A has a huge, huge farm right down the street from where I live, and they could come work for you. Well, you know, that would be the perfect candidate for somebody to apply for an agriculture specialist because we do have... You know, that's one of our missions that a lot of people are not familiar with. So, you know, with all the produce that gets imported through our port, we have to make sure that, that you know, pests or diseases that could basically devastate one of our industries in the U.S. are not allowed to come in. 
And these days, with you know everything being being a global market, we have shipments sometimes that'll that'll come in from Asia, come in through Mexico, uh, and you'll get a pest that's not even found in Mexico. Uh, so, but an agriculture specialist, uh, they wear the same uniform as the officers, but they don't carry a gun, and their job is to to examine and inspect all that produce uh, and and uh, different food products that come in to make sure that they're safe. Uh, and so a lot of times we'll find a pest. Uh, it depends on if it's um, a pest that there's different levels of danger with these pests. You know, we call them actionable or reportable pests. Uh, but if some pests, we will give the uh, importer a chance to fumigate. Uh, other times we send the whole shipment back uh, to Mexico uh, be- because of that pest. I know. I remember gypsy moth used to be an issue. Is it still? Uh, it still is a okay. lot of other woodborne a- insects, you know. So we also examine the pallets. Sometimes it's not; it's a shipment. It may not be a shipment of produce, but they come on wooden pallets. Those those pallets have to be treated and have to be marked, and we have to. And, but we still examine them, and if we find any pest on that, again, they either have to fumigate it, or sometimes they'll have to send the shipment back to Mexico. Ooh, fumigating, and if it's produce, what about somebody, a pharmacist? A pharmacist could come work for you. Well, you know, we have, uh, again, that's someone that could work in, uh, as an import specialist uh, because we have, a, we have these centers of excellence that we've set up throughout the U.S. Each center is responsible for a different in- industry, and those centers have import specialists. We have a center uh, for pharma- pharmaceuticals. So any pharmaceuticals being imported into the country that need to be reviewed by an import specialist, that's the group that looks at it. So we have somebody who, you know, again, has that background and wants to come work for us. We definitely got a spot for them. So if somebody's already working in law enforcement and they decide, hey, I want to work for customs because that sounds pretty interesting. Your job sounds really interesting to me. It is, and they'd be making a great decision to come work for us. So especially with prior law enforcement, you know, we we do have a lot of folks that work for us that were either former sheriff's deputies or police officers throughout the United States. Uh, We have a lot of people who came to us from the military who are military police. Uh, and, uh, you know, we find that those are some of our best employees. You know, they bring that experience, you know, but, but you'd be surprised. I mean, any kind of experience that you bring is what helps us as an agency because we have people with so many, you know, such a diverse background, uh, and all that benefits us. Do you have to speak a foreign language to get hired? No, but if you're going to be working on the border, which most, most of the positions that we're hiring are on the border Start right now. there. You're, you're going to have to learn Spanish. Now, we, we teach you Spanish as part of the academy, and now we're actually teaching Spanish at the ports of entry as well. And then once we cut you loose, I mean, it's, uh, you, you'll be learning Spanish. Some people pick it up faster than others, uh, but, yeah, you'll, you'll learn Spanish. You have no choice. You have to. I lived down there for a while. I came back with a, my Spanish teacher was not pleased, but I came back with a whole new vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's usually the first, the first vocabulary you learn on the board. <laughs> so, okay, if you want to work for you and you're, you're going through this process, how long does that process take to get hired before you go to the five-month academy and 16 weeks on the job training? Is it like a year? Like if you go to the FBI, it's like a year. It is. And it's for us as well. Matter of fact, and you know, with COVID, it actually made it a little bit tougher because when COVID hit, we actually had to cancel some classes at the academy. So that kind of postponed some of the people that we had in the pipeline ready to go. So, so right now our hiring has slowed down until we start opening that academy back up, which is, is starting to open up again. 
Uh, and so, but yeah, even even under best circumstances, you can usually bet that from the time you apply to the time you come on, it's and you know, and and I'm you know, including part of that training, it's going to be well over a year. Wow. Okay. Do you work with the military? I know there's a lot of people that are um, transferring out of the military right here at Davis Month. And do you tell them, hey, come work for us? We do. Is there we, a transition thing? We have a recruiting team, and uh, uh, and we do. We work with. Uh, Fort Huachuca, we work with Davis Mothin. Uh, there's a program where when someone's going to come out of the military, they give them some uh, some classes, and part of that is helping them apply for other agencies. So we take advantage of that, and uh, we tell them about who we are, what we do, and uh, see if they're interested in coming working for us. Because sometimes that transition from military life to civilian life is not easy. But if you go into an agency that's somewhat similar in structure... It makes that transition a lot easier. You know, I was a, I was in the academy at the time, uh, right after the first Gulf War, and through the VRA, we actually hired a lot of people coming out of the military. Yeah. And you know, it's been a while. So if you look today at a lot of our a lot of our managers at our ports of entry came in from the military during that time. I mean, so uh, they make excellent officers. These are folks that are used to taking orders, uh, extremely patriotic, um, and they've done a whole lot more for a whole lot less. Yes. So uh, it's a great transition, and, and we're very proud to have people from all branches of the military working for us. Very cool. I like that. I like being able to transition people and, and let them know. So your wife and kids have lived in a lot of different places, just like the military, get transferred, transferred, transferred. How does that affect your personal life? You know, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate. And, uh, and you know, one thing that, that I notice with my kids is that uh, they love to travel. Uh, they're very curious about uh, other cultures and other countries. And, uh, um, you know, we really enjoyed our time. It, it, it made us very close as a family because it was just us a lot of times, you know. And, and yeah. we, did, we did make friends uh, uh, in Venezuela. There was a few American uh, families that were there and we still stay in touch today because, you know, it was a, it was that close knit little community that, that we were part of. Um, but more importantly, I mean, it, 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 my kids are extremely patriotic. Uh, you know, I think most of us, most Americans, uh, unless you've lived in another country, you take a lot of things for granted. Yes. You know, you, you take for granted that every time you flip the switch, the lights turn on, every time you turn the knob, the water turns on. And, and then also just the difference in what's available in these countries and, and the challenges that people face. So when you come back, you really, truly understand how great this country is and how fortunate we are to live in this country. Absolutely. I remember when I was in high school, I, I went to Mexico for about a month during Easter time. And here at Easter time, you know, you got a new Easter outfit from the skin out. You were decked out, patent leather shoes, the whole enchilada. Down in Mexico, they went to church to pray. They weren't worried about what they were wearing. Yeah. And it really struck me. It was like, wow, these people are so sincere. Yeah. And, you know, the, because, it's, you know, the hat and the whole, and it's just like it was so fake compared to their compassion. In their, you know, their beliefs, so that really struck a chord with me for a long time, and obviously it still has. But okay, if you're going to recommend somebody to, what kind of person do you want to recommend to come talk to you or 
do you have people calling you saying, hey, should I do this? Or do you have a team here in Tucson where people can call and say, hey, I'd like to high school. High school kids are graduating. Hey, I'd like to learn more about what you do to see if this is something I can do. Do you do internships? We do. We do uh, internships with college students. Okay. So, uh, you know, and, and we uh, we advertise those every, every now and then. We have probably, uh, I think at the field office right now, I think we still have like five interns working for us. And they're interested in different areas of our agency, either mission support or officer or ag specialist. And uh, so we do it. If anybody's interested, we, we you know, we do have uh, on our website, uh, we have a place where you can go and, and, uh, and inquire about that. And our field office, um, you know, just calling the, the field office number, uh, it's uh, 520-407, and I think you can call 2300, uh, and you'll get somebody to just ask for the recruiter. And they'll put you in touch with a recruiter. We have right now. We have one young lady who is in charge of recruiting. Uh, our field office, you know, is is uh, I think for everything we do, border security, trade, mission support, recruiting, everything. There's probably less than 50 of us at that office. Um, but uh, it's it's a great opportunity. I would encourage them to call and ask. What we want is, you know, um, we want obviously folks that are that understand what it is to get into law enforcement. Um, but we also want people with really good communication skills. Uh, one of the things that's really important to us is that, you know, our officers are professional. Uh, it's very easy to be professional when someone's being nice to you. It's a little bit more challenging when someone is not being nice to you. And we have to be professional all the time. So it takes a special kind of person to be able to wear a uniform and a gun and a badge and enforce laws. Uh, again, we're unique because we're facilitating, you know, 95% of the people coming through are great people just coming to shop vacation in Arizona. It's that small percentage that are, you know, bad people bringing in bad things, but you can't treat everybody, you know, like they're uh, bad, like they're bad people because they're not right. So we need, we need someone that understands that, 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 you know, the actions that you take in this uniform represent all of us uh, and, and other law enforcement agencies as well. So do you work with um, like the sheriff department? Do you work hand in hand with these people? You have boats? Well, uh, so if Air somebody Marine, gets out of the Navy, they can drive yeah, a boat? That would be Air and Marine. Air and Marine has, uh, fix, has helicopters, fixed-wing planes, and, and boats, um, and they have offices throughout, uh, including Puerto Rico and throughout the U.S. Um, but for us, uh, it would be, you know, we work closely with the Sheriff's Department because sometimes things that happen at the port uh, are going to impact local law enforcement. So we work very closely with the sheriff's department and with the police department. And so uh, a lot of times we'll have uh, uh, sheriff's deputies and police officers that will come over and work for us. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So you need pilots, you need boat drivers. What are they called, boat drivers? Uh, they, Captain they, of a ship. <laughs> there you go. And... And if you've got a skill that you think would be a benefit to customs and border protection, check it out. Absolutely. I mean, everybody, all the agencies are hiring, yep. all of them. So how do you feel about the bad rap that law enforcement's been getting for the last couple of years? You know, it's, it's really, it's really sad. It's, 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 you know, it's just, it's a shame um, because, you know, the majority of law enforcement officers whether it's a police officer, a sheriff's officer, a DPS officer, um, you know, they wouldn't hesitate one second to get between anybody and danger. Yeah. And, it, and they don't care who that person is. 
you know, and, and I'm not saying that we're all perfect, but, you know, there's also, we also have to take a look at, at, uh, it can't be just one-sided, you know, there has to be personal responsibility and social responsibility on both sides. And I think that, that, uh, what's going on right now is a shame because, uh, it, it's, it's always been a tough job. It's always been a tough job. And then when, when someone attacks you like that, um, it makes it that much tougher. And I think, and in, in I think back on some of the more high-profile cases that have happened, drugs have been involved with each and every one of them. And if people would be more concerned about reforming people who are on drugs instead of reforming law enforcement, we probably wouldn't have a lot of these problems. You're right, and and you know, and again, when you take a look at you know, here recently we had a couple of sheriff's deputies ambushed. Um, mm-hmm. It's just heartbreaking what 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 their families are going through. You know, the loss of life of a law enforcement officer, um, who, again, steps up to to Do protect, right serve and protect, yeah. and get between anybody in danger. Uh, and then for this to happen, it's just a shame. It's sad. My my heart goes out to these people. I I just don't think people realize, you know how bad drugs, illegal drugs, can affect a person, their behavior, their state of mind, how they respond if they're pulled over, they become combative, you know, and it's just well, and that's something. For, for us at the Ports of Entry, our, our, you know, our mission, you know, for drug interdiction is one of our top priorities, right, right you know, right there with terrorism uh, because of the opioid crisis, and we understand the, you know, that these drugs coming in from Mexico are not just coming into our little border towns where we're located. They're coming out throughout the United States, and it does have an impact on our society. And, and you're seeing that. And so it's, it's extremely important that we do it the best we can to interdict those drugs uh, as they're coming in. It brings out the worst in people and, and the greed. And I, I preach it every, every week. I think I say, stop supporting the cartel. Get yeah. help. There's so many different agencies that we have. If you go to lawmatters1030.org and look under the DEA tab, you'll see a whole list of agencies who will help you get off the drugs. If you've got a loved one, you know, do an intervention, get them off the drugs because nothing good happens when you're addicted to drugs. Exactly. And people have lost their jobs, lost their lives. It's just insane. So what words of wisdom do you want to leave us with? Well, you know, I, I think right now the, the biggest thing is to uh, just be safe uh, and be careful and, and, uh, and, and for folks to get vaccinated. I think that, you know, we, we really, you know, our mission, you know, said has a huge impact on the economy. We need to get, we need to get people back to work uh, and back to school. And to do that, you know, we really need to get vaccinated. I know a lot of people have concerns. You know, we all have concerns about the vaccines and have questions. Uh, but don't assume, don't, you know, uh, check the CDC website, you know, talk to your, to your physician if you have any questions uh, and, and do what's best for you and your loved ones. Because, again, it's not just you. It's everybody that you come in contact with. So, you know, we need to stay safe, uh, get vaccinated, and, uh, and let's get things back to normal as soon as possible. Yeah, listen to your doctor and the CDC. Don't take uh, your medical advice from a politician. That's never a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it is. And John, did you do that, John? Are you vaccinated, John? I'm vaccinated. You're vaccinated. Absolutely. We're all good. 
So everybody should be out there getting vaccinated. If you're not and don't listen to the BS, go to the source, the medical field, the scientists to get your answers, not your local politicians. Okay, we've only got about 30 seconds left. I want to thank you for coming on. I know you're a busy man. Well, I, I appreciate it, Sherry. It's, all, it's always a pleasure coming and talking to you. And, uh, you know, again, thank you for all you do in supporting law enforcement. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Until next week, shop local, stay safe. Talk to you then.